there's a great quote by Faulkner. You all probably know this quote. He says that he believed most people were a little bit better than they ought to be. Mm. And I love that quote. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and that quote was kind of with me when I wrote these stories. Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to another episode of Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Southern poets are among the most highly regarded in literary circles. Their focus and unique view of the world they inhabit remains universal and revered around the globe. Our guest today is among the finest of these. It is such a gigantic honor to welcome Ron Rash. I am Ron Block. And I am Patty Callahan. Let me tell you a bit about our guest and my friend, the acclaimed writer Ron Rash. He has been celebrated as the Appalachian Shakespeare for the depth and timelessness of his writing. An accomplished poet, short story writer, and novelist, Ron has been rewarded with the Frank O'Connor International Short Story Award, the O. Henry Prize, the Sidney Lanier Prize for Southern Literature, and he has been inducted into the Fellowship of Southern Writers and the South Carolina Academy of Authors. And he is the author of one of my favorite novels, Serena. For sure. No slacker there. No slacker there. (laughs) He's been called Ron, a welcome lot of to things, the podcast. But not a slacker. <laughs> not a, never a slacker. Welcome, Ron, to the podcast. We're so grateful for you joining us today. It's an honor. Let's start by talking about how you came to write poetry. What's the origin of that? And what were the seeds that were planted in your young life that led you to writing? Well, I've, I've always enjoyed poetry, but I think probably two writers had a huge impact on me as I got into my late teens, early 20s. James Dickey, mm-hmm. uh, probably best known for Deliverance, but a, a fantastic poet. And he, he kind of showed me the possibilities in my own landscape of you know, North Carolina. Uh, but also Seamus Heaney, and, and in some ways maybe even more so because Heaney kind of had, there was a sense that you were reading and a, a writer who was acclaimed worldwide, and yet I always felt a he was writing about my world as much as his. And so those writers inspired me. And uh, I've always loved music. Um, I, I wanted to be a rock and roll star, but I couldn't sing and I was no good playing guitar. So I kind of <laughs> had to fall back on another kind of music. And I hope I got a little bit of that right. No, you did. <laughs> you did. And it's so funny. You talk about universal things. One of my favorite poems of yours is The Abandoned Homestead in Watauga County. And it's that's universal because I'm from upstate New York, which is so far from North Carolina, but it's universal themes. It's universal thoughts and it's universal imagery. So it, international is just, it's 
amazing. And I love how you're writing of novels and short stories and now a novella all feel like poetry, but in a different format. Am I right that you came to poetry first and then the other forms? Pretty much. I've I've written a few short stories, but I spent, yeah, most of my late 20s, early 30s, I was really concentrating on poetry. And I, I hope and I've tried to bring everything I learned from writing poetry into the prose. And uh, so, you know, and the writers, you know, that I, that I think I've, as prose writers, uh, I've always enjoyed Joyce and Faulkner, just the way they play with words yeah. and, and what they do with rhythms. So, uh, yeah, you know, I, I think that was a valuable kind of foregrounding for, for prose. And I think a lot of writers, uh, Start there. Uh, yeah, start there and, uh, and and sometimes move on, sometimes don't. You know, one of our favorite authors of Ron and I both is Paula McLean, and she was yes. classically trained also as a poet. And just like you, when you're reading her prose, you're thinking, wasn't this once a poem? Right. <laughs> and, you know, did, 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 did they take a poem and turn it into a story? Yeah. And how different is it for you? to write the novella versus the novel versus the poem? And do you go in knowing which one you are going to write? I think uh, a lot of times I don't. You know, I've had several several novels start off as poems oh. and then become short stories. And then, uh, you know, that happened particularly most vividly with One Foot in Eden because that novel I kept, you know, I kind of had this horrifying moment when I realized I was going to have to try to write a novel. Yeah. <laughs> and I'd never, I'd written, I'd, I'd written two that were so bad and I, I had to give them, you know, I just threw them away. And, uh, you know, but, but yeah, you know, I, a lot of times I just don't know. It's almost like going to a optician and you, may, you know how they kind of click. The, <laughs> and and, and sometimes I, yeah, it takes that moment where finally everything comes in. But yeah, a lot of times I, I don't know. So uh, sometimes you, you know, I will, uh, you know, use my own, maybe this shows how limited I am, but I will uh, write a poem and then, you know, maybe write a short story on pretty much on the same, using a lot of the same imagery or sometimes even the same kind of narrative. Yeah. Your largest novel, Serena, was that, did you go into that knowing it was going to be a novel or was it more of an image or was it more that you thought it was going to be a poem? I'm so curious how that grew out of the ground, either as a poem or a full novel in your head already. Yeah. Uh, actually, it came, in the beginning of it, it, came as an image. I was actually driving on a back road and uh, just, this image came to me of a woman on horseback. So cool. And I could just see from just the image she was in silhouette that she was very erect very very much in control of the horse and seemingly everything else and uh and i knew that someone was looking at her and i kind of was just daydreaming and and i knew that whoever was looking at her was uh in love with her but also afraid of her that turned out to be her husband and that image actually comes about the middle of the book yeah it just started there Oh, that gave me chills. It reminds me when people asked C.S. Lewis where Narnia came from, he said he imagined he just had an image one day, just like you imagined. He was 16 and he or 14 and he saw 
a fawn in a snowy wood carrying parcels by a lamppost. And that's yeah, it. What do you do? What I mean, do you start? How do you start? So many times I start with an image. Um, I've tried to peg down the origins of, of things. You know how tough it is, Ron. People say, where did that poem come from? And you can't. Yeah. You're like, um, 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 right? But yeah. I think I've narrowed it down. It's either a question or an image. And I think for you, it's almost always images. Yeah, it usually starts that way. Uh, and you have to let your mind free float to let images show up. You can't make images show up. That's fascinating, too. Yeah, I mean that's where uh, you know I'm, I'm I'm a big reader of Carl Jung and yep uh, that's he comes closer to to explaining this uh, what what happens as anyone that just that sense of stories and the poems are out there and yep you know it's not so much we create them as we just kind of somehow tap into something that's already there. It's the universal unconscious and Jungian symbolism and archetypes. Whenever you can tap those, it's yeah. even better. All right, we're not, we yes. could we could have a whole youngian discussion right here. Yeah. Um, and I'm here for it. I am here for it. I'm listening to both of you and going like, I wonder that these ideas and images must like duke it out in your brains to see what form they're going to come out in. And I just, I just, it's a great image. I only have one form. So only Ron's head is duking it out. I'm a, I'm a one string band. I don't know. Yeah. One string. Very band. powerful band. Oh, yes. Agreed. So, Ron, you have actually been, as we mentioned before, the Appalachian Shakespeare. How does that feel to you? Because that's kind of a heavy title. Well, I'm not. I'm, I'm not. A, you know, I, that uh, there's only one Shakespeare. I don't know how he did it. He is so much yeah. greater writer. I, I mean, I go back. I actually read him probably as much as anyone. Right. I, I just continue to be amazed at uh, he works on that level. Uh, of language and character. Uh, but I just try to, yeah, I just, you know, I try to use what I've learned from other writers as much as I can. And uh, I just uh, try to write as well as I can. Uh, you know, there's a great moment. Uh, Stephen King did an interview years ago. And, uh, you know, he gets all sorts of criticism about not being a serious writer, being a, a bad writer, whatever. And, and <laughs> somebody asked him about this. And he said, well, I'm trying <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> and I, you know, I'm trying, you know, I'm trying to write the best, you know, poem or story. And uh, if it falls short, I, you know, at least I've given it my best effort. If it was easy, when, everyone would do it, Ron. Yeah. That's true. That's true. So um, when did you actually feel like, I can do this? I, and you felt like you might have had some success in writing? Oh, wow. Uh, I was kind of a late bloomer. I didn't really start writing till I was in college. Or trying to write, and it, it just didn't it didn't really come well easily for me. But when I got into my late twenties, you know, I got a poem or two accepted. Uh, you know, got a started. You know, I think that that helped. And uh, a couple of writers actually saw my work. Uh, writers I respected in some small journals and let me know that they liked the work. But uh, yeah, but I think there's always a sense. <laughs> <laughs> uh, every time I start writing a new new project or a new story, uh, uh, am I right or am I? <laughs> mm -hmm. And there's always a lot of self doubt, which I tell my students is probably the best thing. Uh, you know, you have to be a little bit uh, that way. 
Yeah, that's got to make the work a lot better, though. I mean, I think if you were too overconfident, it would be like, Ooh. well, I think that's the worst thing that could happen to you. Yeah. Oh, when somebody says to me, I think it's the best thing I ever wrote. I'm like, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, when they're when they claim it, I just the the loathing and self-doubt are um, never ending. And Ron, don't you feel like everything we write, it's like starting over? Of course, there's what we've learned and the language, but it's new every time you don't go into it thinking, oh, I know how to do this. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, when I go in, I, I never know. I mean, the one thing that is somewhat assuring is that you have done it before. Yes. But, uh, at the same time, you know, doing it before and doing it well again <laughs> is, yeah. are two different things. But yeah, that's uh, it's always a struggle. And you know, what, what I find interesting is how some stories, novels come so easily and then others. And usually, unfortunately, it's the ones that come easier that seem to be the ones that work out. And I, I've got a feeling this is where we kind of go back to the Jungian yes. idea that you just suddenly have tapped into something that, uh, that um, uh, is already there. I always call it the um, river under the river, right? Yeah. Like, it's under, I always, that's how I imagine it, right? Yeah. That if I just write from this river, it's good. But if I can get to that river under the river, yeah. it's even better, which is what you do. Which brings me to Serena. I remember years ago talking to you about this novel and, and telling you how much I loved it. And you told me how very, very much that story took out of you. You said it was one of the hardest books you had ever written, line by line, you know, sentence by sentence. It had really wrung you dry. But now you revisit her. <laughs> you took the hardest one you have in the valley, this astounding collection of short stories and a novel about Serena. So what drew you to revisiting her story in this way? Yeah. Well, I've never been one to to go back to characters, but I think I saw some you know, I saw some some really bad things happening environmentally a couple of years mm. ago, three years ago, four years ago, and uh, it was almost as if I wanted to write about that issue again, uh, or at least you know, kind of remind people how quickly lost wilderness can be because they're you know they're. There was a lot going on as far as trying to uh, open up the federal lands. And so uh, that was a compulsion. But, uh, yeah, so I kind of thought I need to bring Serena back into this world. But I didn't want to write a novel. And that for me, I just I just didn't want to do that because I felt like that would be – I didn't want to write Ghostbusters too, you know. <laughs> Rocky so, Seven. You didn't want to write yeah, Rocky Seven. Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, so, but I, but I'd always wanted to write a novella because I've admired that form. You know, Eudora Welch. He's written a couple. Uh, Jim Harrison. Yeah. Dennis Johnson, probably one of my favorite novellas, Train Dreams. Annie Prue, it, you know, you consider Brokeback, which is close to a long short story novel. So, uh, yeah, that, and, and I found out novellas are really hard to mm -hmm. write. Uh, have you written one? I have written one that is an audible original about okay. Florence Nightingale. Okay. And you're right. I'm, I, when I finished, I said I might as well have just 
written a novel, it would have made my life easier because paring it down to what you want out of it is really difficult. Yeah, that was what I found really tough trying to, because you are, I mean, I think a novella has the effect of a novel. Yeah. But you're somehow making it more concise. But it was it was fun, and it made me appreciate people who do it really well. And uh, But it was fun to get back, you know, and seeing uh, – couple of characters and you know Rachel I, I wanted her to have a moment where we really got a sense of where she's what she's become yeah I mean you know when I start Serena that opening scene in Serena she doesn't move she's on the uh, on the bench. You know, bench yeah and she uh, is completely just there and, and and by the end of Serena but also as we see in these last scenes she's really a uh, become a strong, strong human being. And I thought that just that image of her just ready to go at it again. That uh, transformation. Like- we get to see her transform a little bit. Yeah. I'm curious because we're talking about Jungian and archetypes. What do you think Serena is? I see her as a warrior. Yeah, a, a warrior, um, perhaps a death force, mm. uh, a kind of... Uh, I think uh, Goethe talked about the spirit that denies. Yes. And uh, I like that. So I think she's she's something, you know, and I think once again with Jung, you know, there is something within us too, that kind of death drive, that kind of uh, breaking oneself off from uh, humanity, which is to me the scariest aspect of her, that she uh, is wanting to be, outside of uh, humanity, and she, she achieves it, but at a price. She wants to be outside the norms because something else matters to her even more. Yeah. And I love that archetype. But I feel when you read these characters, to me, echoes a solid archetype that way. The more we can relate because they're all little broken off pieces of ourselves at the same mm-hmm. time. And so we recognize it or we abhor it. But all at the same time, it's all the pieces of being human. It's fascinating. Yeah, and I think that's why we respond to them. Yeah. Uh, these archetypes so strong. Well, speaking of in the valley again, you talked about Serena and some of the environmental concerns, but there's also a lot of social concerns that the other pieces in the book address and and tell us. Can you talk to us about the intent of those and what you hoped that the reader would take away? Well, I, as I was working on this book, finishing it up, COVID hit, mm-hmm. and and I really that that really shaped. Well, also I added the flu epidemic in in, in the valley in the novella yeah. that became a little more of a focus for me. But also, uh, I wanted to write stories about people being in really, really. I mean, I, I, in a sense, I guess I always do, but but even yeah. really dire situations. But I wanted also to show people really which I think is usually the case, responding really bravely, mm-hmm. uh, allowing themselves to moments where they're a little bit better human beings than uh, maybe uh, they have a right to be. There's a great quote by Faulkner. You all probably know this quote. But he says that he believed most people were a little bit better than they ought to be. Mm. And I love that quote. <laughs> oh, and, love uh, that. And, and that quote was kind of with me when I wrote these stories. And, uh, and and I wanted to finish the story with the you know the the grandfather you know the 
saving the great grandfather, saving the child, this, you know, that kind of sacrifice and heroism. But I think what literature can do very often, and, and you know, because sometimes people say, well, why do you, why do we write about such uh, extreme things or such sad things at times? But, uh, I think literature is, is about those moments when uh, we really reveal who we are. And I, I don't think of myself as a, I'm not a nihilist, certainly. And, and I, I do believe that uh, very often people kind of come through in those moments. And I think particularly in this book, as, as tough as the situations were, we see, but not in all stories, because not in, not in life, unfortunately. Right. So another great quote I love is from George Saunders. He says that what a story is about, and I thought of you when I read this, what a story is about is to be found in the curiosity it creates in us, which is a form of caring. So you create this curiosity, which makes us care. And you do it even with the characters who aren't doing what we might define as a good thing. I'm curious if that's something in your mind or if these characters or you outline them or you research them or do they very much grow just from the soil of imagination? Yeah, they, they kind of, uh, they, they tend to grow. I, I, you know, I'm not much, you know, I don't really, I mean, do a lot of research for the characters. Okay. But they just kind of, they kind of come and uh, I do a lot of drafts and, and oh, I start do? to hear their voices. Yeah. So I you do more hearing. drafts than you do outlining. Yeah. I, yeah. Okay. I don't, I'm, I'm usually not doing much outlining. Uh, different writers, as you know, we all do it a little bit differently, yeah. but uh, I found that a lot of times uh, I, I need to wander to yeah. find my story. Uh, and uh, so even when I think I know where the story's going, it always surprises me. There's a great, Seen uh, Flannery O'Connor uh, actually in, in uh, Good Country People when the uh, Bible salesman steals the wooden leg. Uh, if you read that story, it's good Good Country People. You it you you just you feel like oh wow she set this up so well so carefully, and she said, and I believe her you know good Catholic that she she was uh, that uh, she says I didn't know he was going to steal that leg till he did. So she wrote that, I love it. and and I oh, believe man. it, and and yet you know at the same time it just seems so right and inevitable. Yeah, so those are the kind of uh, that would be the, to me. That's uh, yeah. We'll use her language. That, those are moments of grace for writing, yes. and it just comes. And we've all had them, and and I think yeah. what keeps us writing is hoping we get another one of those yeah. moments of grace yeah. because we write and we write and we write, and then they hit, and then we wait for another one. Yeah. And, and you have those wonderful moments, and athletes do this, have this too, where you're, you're, you're for at least a little while, you're a little bit better than you really are. <laughs> or your character's a little wiser than you are, yeah, and they yeah. rise up and they say something or do something, and you sit back and say, oh, because you know that's wiser than yourself. I wouldn't yeah, have said yeah, that. Yeah. When you were working through the pandemic, just like the rest of us were, mm-hmm. and Ron trying to run a library you know, during the pandemic and we were trying to write, both of us had books out during the pandemic. What are some really great standout reads? Because you're such a good reader on top of being an incredible writer. You are such a good reader. I love hearing who you're reading. I think I've written down everyone you, you said today. What were some Uh, standout pandemic reads? 
Well, I read, uh, wow, uh, Unsettled Ground by Claire Fuller. Okay. A, a British writer. That book really, uh, one thing I've never, I, I, you know, contemporary British fiction, even when it's about social class, tends to be more urban. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But she writes about the rural poor. And that, that book is, is, is wonderful. Uh, I read that one. Uh, I read a book by Lee Durkee, a guy I've never met. He lives in Oxford. It's called, I think, The Last Taxi Driver. Okay, great title. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, read read some books on cave art. Uh, one called Ooh. Stepping Stones. I'm fascinated with that. And actually, one of the stories in in the valley is about uh, cave art. Uh, this soldier sees, but I'm just oh, fascinated right. at, at when you you see these images that are you know talk about Jungian uh, image that's thirty five thousand years old. And and uh, when I see those images, there's something about that that I, because we're you know that's our ourselves that that and it's that incredible moment where humans suddenly had the need for art and story and and, and, and story, expressing yeah. themselves right yeah this happened then this happened then this happened yeah. i think about when you talk about those caves i think about the paris catacombs and how they yeah same. underneath the ground there which i think is the perfect way to end even though i know we could all talk for hours ron thank you so much for joining us well so good to see you and Despite the rumors, you did not uh, are not the model for Serena. Oh, I'm not letting that go. <laughs> oh wow! I'll take the um, I'll take the good and light and beautiful parts. But the problem is, you cannot take one without the other with her. You don't get to choose just the good parts. But it's I love hearing package. about images and Jungian and poetry. I I just love talking to you. Thanks, well, one, one just quick anecdote about sure. that. It's Please. funny. A, pre, a, a minister, woman uh, who's, who's actually a minister in Clemson, had read the first 50 pages of Serena. And she was giving a sermon about strong women in the Bible as role models. And she actually said, and this novel that uh, I've been reading uh, by Ron Rash has this strong woman named Serena. And, and some people in, in the congregation had read the book. And so it's pretty funny. Because they were like, uh, she's not very biblical. Yeah, she's not exactly, uh, uh, you yeah. know, the one we, we think is a great. We're not uh, doing a know. Bible study on Serena. Right. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> not sure what scripture yeah. applies to her. Something about hell and brimstone, I'm sure. But yeah. it's got to be. Thank you. Ron. Be. Thank you, Ron. Thank you so much. So good to see you, Patty. You too. And Ron, so, see you again. I hope to see you before too long. Definitely, definitely. Um, can you before we go, can you tell our listeners where they can find you and find out more about your work? Well, uh I think I've got a website somewhere. <laughs> you do, you do. I checked. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh that doesn't tell you a lot, but um I mean, you know, I I don't do Facebook or Twitter. That's just my weird choice, but uh you know, I'm 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 in the bookstores. <laughs> so, there you go. Yes, and you I teach are. at Western. I, I do teach at Western Carolina University. So if you drop by the university, uh, knock on my door. Uh, awesome. maybe, uh, I'll answer if I'm not too too busily writing away. That's better than Facebook. Trust more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 You're probably saving a lot of headache not being on social media. Yeah. So thank you both for this masterclass today. It's just been so enlightening and just so in-depth, and it's been wonderful. Thank you. And thank you all for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writers Block podcast. On behalf of Patty and the rest of the Friends in Fiction team, we so appreciate you joining us. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform. Be sure to share with a friend. 
As always, we'll be back each Friday with a new episode that you are sure to love. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends and Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.